What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the All Day ABA podcast. My name is Kayla, and I'm your host. My mission is to make behavior analysis fun and accessible for clients, students, and even supervisors. If this is the first time you're listening to the All Day ABA podcast, welcome. Please subscribe, like, you know, do all the things on whatever platform you are listening. I started in ABA back in 2015. Um, I kind of fell into it, I would say. I was planning on being like an editor for a book publishing company and then started doing a rec program for disabled individuals and neurodivergent individuals at a local place took that over. People convinced me that, you know, English should not be my major, so I switched it to psychology, and I was doing some volunteering and met someone who worked in ABA, and the rest is kind of history. Um, I originally thought it was a lot like OT and speech, and there are some similarities, but, like, I thought it was this well-established kind of like publicly accepted therapy and I didn't realize the controversy around it. I was truly naive to all of that. I, you know, knew about autistic people. I had a lot of experience um, working with disabled individuals and was really passionate about doing so. Um, and I did not I did not know about the controversies around ABA when I got into it. I was very young. Um, I think I was like 19 when I started doing ABA. Um, I did not have a lot of life experience. I and you know, a lot of online stuff was still different back then. There weren't as many online communities as there are today. Um, there there were a lot. Like it wasn't like social media was brand new or anything. Um but like everything was just a little bit quieter, it seemed like. And I, I didn't think to do a lot of digging into ABA or controversy surrounding it because I didn't know. I mean, I, I truly did not know. Um, and so I just, when I started in it, I did as I was told and I truly felt like I had my client's very best interests at heart. And I wanted to see them progress and learn new skills. I wanted to support them. I wanted to see them lead really happy and independent lives. And I don't think anybody comes into this field wanting the worst for anybody that they work with. I don't think that's anybody's goal. Um, So, you know, I I started to see more controversy about it online um, as the years went on. And in 2018, I was told about a Facebook group for BCBAs and autistics. And that is when my journey towards a neurodiversity mindset really began. And I'm still learning. When I say like a journey, I don't mean that I have reached like a destination. I am not, (laughs) I am not a perfect person. Um, I'm, I'm still learning a lot. I, I feel like the more that I learn, the more that I realize how very little I really know. Um, so 
for me, from what I understand about neurodiversity, it is essentially that people are, some people are wired differently than neurotypical individuals. So someone who is neurotypical does not struggle with anxiety, depression, or basically anything else listed in um, the DSM or, you know, other like medical textbooks or anything. Um, People who would fall under the umbrella of neurodiversity would include um, autistic individuals, um, ADHD individuals, people with anxiety and depression, although I can touch on that in a second. Um, Basically, anybody who has a cognitive or mental or processing type of difference would probably fall under the umbrella of neurodiversity. It's a pretty broad category. It really is. I myself have ADHD. Um, And so in like, and I didn't get diagnosed until I think I was age 20. I think I was about to turn 21. Um, But all of the signs were there when I was a kid. And girls tend to slip through the cracks a lot. Like I slipped through the cracks a lot. Um, Now with neurodiversity, you can still have a disorder. Anxiety and depression, although yes, they are neurodivergences, it can still require treatment and you should not have to suffer alone. I would, I recently had postpartum psychosis and it was the scariest thing I have ever gone through and I needed treatment to get better. It wasn't just that I had a difference and I had to learn to live with it. No, like it was a whole it was a whole thing. And I can do a separate podcast episode about that and about my experiences with that. Um, but that's, that's a whole thing for a whole other day. Um, so basically, in my learning about neurodiversity and me being neurodivergent, I, I, I understood a lot more and I related to my clients on a deeper level. Um, and I eventually started just as I was exposed to more and more online, I started seeing ABA being called abusive and things like hashtag yes, all ABA and people saying all ABA is abusive all the time. And no one wants to, nobody who's in ABA wants to see that. Nobody wants to feel that. Nobody wants to be called an abuser, especially when you care so much about your clients. Like you're probably, if you're listening to this, you probably care very, very, very deeply about your clients and about the work that you do. But there are shortcomings in ABA. There are a lot of shortcomings in ABA. And I'm not here, I'm not here to sit here and call you an abuser. That's not what I'm going to do in this podcast episode. That is not my goal. And there are a lot of nuances and contextual variables that go into everything. But I am here to say that we have to come to a place where we can recognize ABA's harmful practices, shortcomings, etc. We just have to. And we have to do that for the benefit of our clients and the people that we work with. Whether you work with you know, neurodivergent individuals or not, ABA still has shortcomings. I mean, every field does, but ABA has a lot. We have a lot. It's a fairly new field. 
that's just a fact. Um, it has a very dark history. And I don't think there's any person around that can deny that. We can get into that in another podcast episode if people want to hear about the history of ABA. It is not a fun thing to think about or to accept. It just isn't. And there's a lot of current things happening that are very dark and difficult and hard to accept. And I just, I just, it's, it's a hard thing. It really is. It's, but think about it this way. It is a lot harder for the people on the other end of services who may be receiving really harmful practices. They may be on the receiving end of really harmful practices and think about how difficult it is for them. Like, yes, we have to sit there with the discomfort of knowing that the system of ABA is broken and that we may have done things in our careers that are not great and that have caused trauma or pain or suffering for the people we've worked with. That's not a fun thing. But on a more positive note, um, I want to tell you guys, I wrote a blog post for Study Notes ABA a while ago, and I will link it in the show notes. And it is about how to handle ABA criticism in five steps. And I wanted to discuss it in this episode because I really, I, I mean, I really feel like it's relevant because we can sit here all day long and talk about the harm the ABA has caused. But then what do you do? What do you do next? No one wants to just sit there with that discomfort and not be able to do anything about it. That's not fun. So the first thing, the first step that I mention in the blog post that I wrote is to listen to the experiences of others. So online, in person, wherever. It's not a great thing to do when someone says, brings up a criticism of ABA, it's not a great thing to just say, oh, well, did you get ABA yourself? Because you can indirectly hear about the experiences of others and still form an opinion about it. Especially people who are autistic can relate to other autistic individuals and advocate on their behalf. So listening to uh, just listen to others, period. That's the first That's the first step. If you're not able to listen to others, then you're not ready to do the rest of the work that it's going to take. And maybe that means you're not ready to work in this field. And that's okay. If you're not ready to work in this field, that is okay. There are other options out there. There are other ways that you can help disabled individuals or use behavioral science in other ways. But to be in this field, if you really want to make a difference, then you have to be able to listen to the experiences of others in a non-defensive way. I think that's another important component. So just, just listen with an open mind. The second step is to validate the experiences of others. This can be really hard to do, especially if you're in a really defensive mindset. And I was for a really long time. You know, just the way that I would talk to people online was not the kindest and wasn't the most open-minded. And I think I was kind of on this high horse of, I know better, or they don't know what they're talking about. And I think 
we all have to come to this place where maybe we don't know as much as we think we know and validating the experiences of others saying look i'm really sorry this happened to you or to someone that you know you can ask them to tell you more if they're comfortable doing so and even helping give people resources to report things that have happened to them to the BACB to other licensing entities you know we we don't want these things to go unreported if someone is comfortable doing so so validating the experiences of others and being like look if there are unethical things that have happened to you then we we need to get that addressed if you're comfortable doing so so i think that's one way we can validate the experiences of others step three in the post that i wrote is to resist the urge to say that you do good aba don't do hashtag not all aba because the people are, that are saying yes all aba are not there to like validate that you're doing good aba that's that's not the point we can't have a system of ABA that is good until we are like weeding out the bad. So saying that I do good ABA, well, that's not helping the harm that's happening. That's, that's not, that's not helping. So please resist the urge to say that you do good ABA. You may be a really wonderful professional. You may have a really good heart and there may still be areas that you can improve on. So saying that you do good ABA kind of walls off the opportunity for you to do better. If you want to think about it that way. Um, step four would be to analyze your own practices. Where are areas that you can improve? Where are harmful practices happening where you work? How can you take what you've done in the past and move forward and do better? That would be step four. And step five would be to advocate for change in the field. So there are a lot of different ways that you can do this. Um, and I've mentioned a lot about harmful practices in this episode. So let me just let me just list off some that have been identified by many critics of ABA and that I agree with. So forced eye contact can actually be painful for autistic individuals so forcing someone to work on an eye contact goal especially if they don't want that as a goal can be very traumatic that can be really difficult that's a harmful practice that is rampant in aba i have worked on eye contact goals with kids before i'm not here to deny that and i wish that i hadn't i wish that i had learned that eye contact is a trust thing it is it can be sensory overload for a lot of people um not even neurotypical people know how to deal with eye contact like i'm neurodivergent and like i struggle to know when to make eye contact like how much is too much which eye should i look at like even i was sitting across the table from my husband at our six-year anniversary dinner and i was like which of his eyes do i look at when we're talking and like how much eye contact am I comfortable with? And like, he's the person I trust most in this world. So eye contact goals can be really, really, really harmful. Um, also eliminating stimming 
Um, it is sometimes called stereotypy, or it looks like it's spelled like stereotypy. Um, so those would be like the quote unquote restricted and repetitive movements or um, related actions. Like you can stim um, watching a watching a video. So trying to eliminate someone's stimming can be really really bad. I mean it, we just shouldn't do that. I like I mean my hair is in a bun right now, but. I twirl my hair a lot. And if someone came up to me and like tried to get me to stop twirling my hair, I'd be like, get out of here. Let me twirl my dang hair. I twirl my hoodie strings for those of you that can, you know, see me on um, video and the video version of this podcast. I have been playing with my pen for this entire podcast episode because I do a lot of stimming. Um, there's, there are forms of stimming that can be really dangerous. Um, someone who is engaging in self-injurious behavior, um, that's a whole other topic. And I'm not qualified to speak to that. Um, some stimming can be caused by communication barriers, like um, self-injurious stimming can be caused by communication barriers. It can be caused by medical issues. There's a whole, that's a whole other topic. But for right now, I'm just talking about non-harmful stimming that a lot of people do. And autistic stimming may look just different from other types of stimming. So hand flapping, we don't need to stop hand flapping. We don't need to stop repetitive snapping. Um, these are just ways that a lot of autistic people express their need for movement. It can be a self-regulation -regula tool for a lot of people. Um, sometimes people just stim when they're happy. Sometimes people stim when they're bored. So this is still really, really common in ABA, and it is a really common goal that I have seen. I have worked on stim reduction before. I'm like, it hurts me to stay, say that now that I know better. Um, but sometimes we just don't know what we don't know, and that doesn't make it okay, but that's just the reality of it. Another really harmful practice is ex escape extinction. Um, there's a difference between escape extinction in the way of stopping someone from running out into a road. Yes, that is technically escape extinction, but that's a safety issue when we are talking about harmful practices in ABA, generally, we're not talking about immediate safety issues. Those don't always come up as often as these other like benign sorts of things. Um, there are a lot of resources out there about alternatives to escape extinction. Um, I believe Dr. Megan Miller um, has some different resources about alternatives to escape extinction. Um, I, if I can find um, those different things, I will link those in the show notes. I am making a note to myself right now to put those in. Um, I am not qualified to talk about that just because I, I don't know enough. I just truly don't. But I know I've done escape extinction and there's just better ways. There are just better ways. And there are other people out there who are 
better experts in this area and who can help teach you how to do better. Um, forced compliance is another one. Um, oh, it's a whole topic in and of itself. I know all of these are, but if you teach a kid just to comply with every single demand, you open them up to a lot of abuse. I mean, what are they going to do if someone is trying to, this is a, I'm going to put a trigger warning here right now. Um, what are they going to do if someone is trying to sexually abuse them? I mean, think about that. If we are just teaching a person to comply with 100% of the demands that people give to them, we're opening them up to a lot of danger. So there are times where it is good to teach kids to say, don't touch me. No, I don't want to do that. And we have to think about that when we are creating goals or when we are working with kids. So another harmful practice that is really, really common is 40 hours per week of ABA. That is a lot. That is a lot. That is too much, in my opinion. I, I know that there are some people that are able to get that many hours. I know there are some families that want that many hours. And just having a kid work on goals for 40 hours a week is exhausting. Like even at your job, if you work 40 hours a week at a job, you may not be able to sit down and do 40 hours of focused work per week. You get breaks there are times that you're just goofing off at work. Think about that. So I think 40 hours per week is too much. And there's actually some evidence for that. There is increasing amounts of evidence that 40 hours a week of ABA is too much. Um, that's, that's my thoughts on that. Edible reinforcement is another controversial topic. And I'm not talking about reinforcement where a kid says, hey, I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? Yes, of course you want to give them food for that. What I'm referring to is cutting up M&Ms into tiny little pieces to give to a kid for complying with various tasks. That is not okay. And there will be some people that will say, yeah, but food is the only thing that a kid will quote unquote work for. Okay, there are ways to incorporate learning while a kid is eating without using food as a specific reinforcer. Again, I'm not qualified enough to truly speak about this, but I am here to describe that edible reinforcement can be a really, really harmful thing. And people in ABA are often using it willy-nilly without thinking about the consequences of that. It can also create a really harmful relationship with food. And a lot of neurodivergent kids are at risk for eating disorders. And we don't want to use food in a way that may worsen a current or potential eating disorder. So edible reinforcement is under valid criticism 
right now. And the last one that I want to touch on um, in this episode, this is not an exhaustive list of harmful practices, um, but withholding an AAC device, an augmentative or alternative, alternative communication device, and withholding that or not letting a person explore their voice on their device is just not okay. We are not experts in AAC. Um, AAC is still a growing area of communication because things like iPads didn't exist until like the most recent 15 years. I don't actually know exactly when iPads came out and I don't know exactly when um, speech generating devices came out. I need to look that up. But best practices for AAC are not widely discussed in the field of ABA. And just like a baby will babble with their voice, someone who is learning how to use an AAC device may explore their voice and it may come off as stimming or just pointless communication, but we don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide what areas of a person's communication are worthy of being communicated. And um, Nye Functioning Autism on Instagram, I will link her Instagram in the show notes, um, talks about, has a series talking about AAC trauma and different things that can cause trauma for AAC users. So I think ABA has a long way to go in that specific area. So that's kind of the harmful practices that have been identified and brought to light that I wanted to talk about today. So moving along, um, let's talk about some things that we can do better, like more positive, more positive ways forward. Um, so assent and consent are two topics that have been um, more popular recently. So consent is when someone, I, I don't quote me on this, this is my understanding of assent and consent, but consent is when someone over the age of 18 agrees to something like a medical treatment. We talk a lot about informed consent in research and things of that nature. Um, so if you're over the age of 18, which if you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you are, you have to provide consent to get your ears pierced. You have to provide consent to get a tattoo. Um, in ABA, if you are a new, like a when someone's first coming into ABA, they have to, they or their parents or guardians or whoever have to consent to services. So that is consent. Um, someone who is under the age of 18, to my understanding, based on what I know, cannot provide consent. However, there is a term called assent, A-S-S-E-N-T, and to my understanding, assent is when someone it, it can be any age, but particularly under the age of 18, someone is agreeable to what is happening to them or what is going on. So let's take my daughter, for example. She would provide assent when we take her to the doctor 
and she's not like screaming, crying, and trying to run away. Those would, that, those would be examples of withdrawing assent. And assent is something that anybody can give or withdraw. Um, so when we honor assent withdrawals from our clients, that is a very good thing. Um, we need to learn more about assent and how to identify when someone is withdrawing their assent. Um, especially with like someone's body language or nonverbal communication. It's pretty obvious if someone says, I don't want to do this right now. That's a pretty obvious assent withdrawal. But there are more subtle things like shying away from a therapist or an instructor, um, running out of the room, um, laying on the floor might be an example of an assent withdrawal. And when we learn to recognize those and honor those, we can build a lot of trust with the people that we work with. So that is one area that I would suggest everybody learn more about is assent. And hopefully you already know a lot about consent. Um, and if not, look it up and learn more about it. Um, another area that I feel like we can make a lot of positive movements forward with is collaboration and accepting that other fields, particularly occupational therapy, speech and language pathology, and physical therapy and developmental therapy, those fields may know much more than we do. And the good thing is we can use collaboration with those professionals to improve our own field and our own practices. Um, I have like informally collaborated with a speech and language pathologist that I know and love and adore. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful experience. And I wish that other people could have those experiences more as well. Um, it requires a lot of humility and open communication. It requires a lot of um, talking. <laughs> it requires a lot of talking. Um, and when we can admit that we don't know something, that's a really good step forward. Um, I see a lot of professionals that are maybe stepping out of bounds with things like communication and speech when that is falls more under the scope of practice and competence of a speech and language pathologist. And if that's the case, then you can consult with a speech and language pathologist or collaborate with one to make sure that everything is kind of falling in line with best practices. Um, so collaboration is an area where ABA can move forward in a really, really positive way. Um, so that includes recognizing, recognizing our own limitations in scope of competence and practice. Um, yeah, none of this is clinical advice, by the way, but I hope that this is a podcast episode that you can listen to and go forward thinking critically and using your best judgment to make impactful decisions for yourself and the people that you work with. Um, yeah, I hope you've learned something today. My journey towards a neurodiversity mindset has been very messy and I have not been perfect. I kind of equate it my, for my own self to like 
the stages of dying. Let me actually look those up right now as we speak. So stages of dying. Um, it says, well, these, I think it was the five stages of dying. The first one is denial. The second one is anger. The third one is bargaining. The fourth one is depression. And the fifth one is acceptance. And that comes from www.verywellhealth.com. Um, so I would say that in the beginning of my journey, I was in denial. I was like, no, ABA is great. What are you talking about? It's a science. It's not a therapy or not that it's not a therapy, but like it's a science. That's all it is, is a science. We can't deny science. So I was in the first stage and I was in a stage of denial. Then I was kind of in the second stage and I felt really angry and anxious and just, I, I was kind of combative online, I think, with various people that I interacted with. Um, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Um, the third stage is bargaining. I guess I didn't quite have that stage necessarily. Um, but, so, you know, if you're listening to this, you might feel like bargaining, maybe even with yourself. Um, the fourth stage, depression, I definitely have experienced moments of feeling really sad and really guilty for some of the things that I've done in the past. I've and just felt really hopeless with ABA. And I know a lot of people that do. And it's a hard thing to admit that, especially if you have a master's degree in this field like I do, it's a very specified degree. There are other things that you can do with it, with that degree, but it's a very specified degree. And some of us have paid a lot of money for our degrees. And you don't want to just throw that away. Or you may be really, really invested in your career in ABA. So you may feel depressed or down or sad about the state of ABA and its history. And those feelings are okay. Those feelings are okay. And the fifth stage is acceptance, which I feel like is where I'm at now. I am open to hearing criticism of ABA. I try my best to advocate for positive changes in the field. And I, I have hope. I really do. I don't know if it will, if the field of ABA will stay the field of ABA forever, or if the future looks like some of the principles or understandings, but under a different name and with different practices. I just, I don't know what it's going to look like from here on out. I really don't. But I'm okay with that, whatever that looks like. And hopefully one day you are too. Thank you for listening. And you can check out the show notes at alldayaba.org. And it'll, you'll find the thing that says um, podcast show notes and click on season one. And this is season one, episode four. I hope that you have a fantastic day. Thank you so, so much for listening. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye.